Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Thanks for checking out this podcast. Notice That is a project of Think Beyond a listener-funded media house focused on connecting humans through therapy and art. To keep this podcast going, we'd love for you to support us on Patreon by searching patreon.com slash thinkbeyondhealing in your favorite web browser. And don't forget to check out our new merch by going to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and clicking on the merchandise tab. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. This week, we'll be finishing our winter releases of the EMDR supplement, a 12-hour advanced EMDRIA course that we created to support clinicians in their practice and embodiment of EMDR therapy. Throughout our certification program, we use the EMDR supplement to inform our exploration of case workshops and to facilitate a meaningful exploration of some foundational and advanced concepts in EMDR. This week's episode will feature conversations specific to future templating, floatbacks, restricted processing, incorporating ego state work, working with dissociation, polyvagal theory in EMDR, and working with preverbal and symbolic processing to reprocess attachment wounds uh, with our clients. Of all the topics we cover in the podcast and in our consultation work with clinicians, these are some of the most frequently asked questions and topic areas that clinicians are curious about. For me personally, much of my EMDR work revolves around the concepts presented in this episode, so we're so excited uh, to get to share the episode with you all. As I mentioned, this will be the concluding episode uh, for this winter's releases specific to the EMDR supplement which means we're going to pick back up with our Back to Basics series. We left off in Chapter 5 of Francine's seminal EMDR textbook, and we'll be picking back up talking about what Phase 3 assessment work can look like. If you haven't been following the podcast uh, or the Back to Basics series for, for very long, be sure to scroll back through the Notice That catalog and catch up to get the context. We're really excited to get back into the Back to Basics series and finish our review of Francine's EMDR textbook. All right. We hope you enjoy the episode and that it encourages and empowers you in your EMDR journey. Enjoy. So now we want to review the very important skill of the future template. Future template is often something that in your initial training happens towards the end of the training after you have learned and integrated a ton of new material. So what we've noticed is that sometimes this skill is kind of overlooked and underutilized, and we really want to highlight and emphasize that this is a tremendously important aspect 
of EMDR. It can be used in the scope of a full treatment plan. It's also a skill that we want to be able to use as its own thing when it's appropriate for the client. So we want you guys to feel uh, really able and confident in using uh, this skill because we really feel like there's a lot of benefit to it. Um, so it's a concept and technique that focuses specifically on preparing the client to face a challenge in the future. Okay, so it's actually much closer to the process of resourcing than it is to reprocessing. And that's kind of a, a helpful way to think about it, that a future template is actually a really robust way of resourcing our clients. So before we discuss the different ways that it can be utilized, it's important uh, that we talk about the neurobiology of a future template. What are we actually doing? So it works to assist the client in creating an internalized template of a future event. And we do this uh, through the power of imagination. And by imagining with the client and really highlighting the sensations of what's going on and all of the different connections that they make in that process, it actually creates a synaptic connection in their system that can then be later utilized when they're actually in that real life situation. So we are pre-installing a neurobiological uh, possibility in their nervous system, which I think is really cool. Um, so if the client is able to create that adaptive future template, when they run into a similar situation in their real life, they have that recent neural network to connect with, right? So their body is able to reference that and say, oh, I know exactly what I want to do in this situation, which is just a beautiful resource that EMDR has to offer our clients. There are a few different ways that we can actually utilize the future template that I think get kind of overlooked often. So one is the kind of traditional way that we think about a future template is we have completed processing a past target. So we're doing that past. We're helping them connect with how that integrates in the present. So maybe targeting something that's present uh, representation of that past experience. And then we go into imagining a scenario in the future. That, that kind of the way we introduce that is to ask them, can you come up with a, an upcoming experience the next couple of days, couple of weeks, where you could imagine having previously experienced that same level of anxiety or fear or insecurity, whatever their presentation was in this upcoming situation. So we are going to play through the upcoming situation, but now it's with the absence of that anxiety or insecurity um, and getting allowing them to create that internalized representation of this is what it would be like to experience that without the previous symptom. Another way that we can utilize future template is at the end of a full trauma network that has been cleared. So if we're utilizing that cluster approach, that treatment plan where we are have selected multiple past experiences that are contributing to a present symptom of some sort, after we've cleared multiple past targets, then we would connect it with the present and then shift into that future template. Some people get confused on if, do we do a future template after every past event that is possible, but until the network at least has the generalization effect, that past, um, the memory network has that generalization effect, it's going to be difficult to imagine the future without that symptom or that level of activation. So we need to be able to clear enough of those past experiences to be able to even envision a future where that activation does not exist. The third and probably to me the most exciting use of a future template is to be able 
to actually um, target something that is coming up in the future without necessarily having to go into processing uh, trauma of the past. So this is really helpful for our clients if they come in and there's something really pressing in their life coming up. Maybe they have a family reunion coming up and they're experiencing a lot of activation around that, or they have to give a speech or a presentation at work of some sort. We, and we don't necessarily have the time to go into where does that activation stem from. We can target that future experience and process through that as if it's a trauma network or a trauma experience and add in that future template with that. So we're actually targeting a future experience and ending that with a future and template of being able to walk through that upcoming event from beginning to end without that disturbance and kind of giving them a plan of how are they going to work through that. I find clients really enjoy that use of it. It's it gives them the ability to have a tool, um, something that feels very um, immediate and a resource that they can use going into that without necessarily having to spend so much time focusing on the past. Mm -hmm. It's very possible to actually kind of create a whole treatment plan out of future templating in this way. That's actually what performance enhancement EMDR is really about. Um, one area that I love to do this kind of work is with women that have some anxiety about birth. If we think about the birth experience, uh, there are lots of points where there might be some moments of anxiety. So we can do a whole series of future template work around the experience of, oh my gosh, I'm going into labor and the, the full labor process, taking baby home, the first night with baby, <laughs> um, all of the challenges that can come in the fourth trimester. So we can have a series of future templates that look at the particular distress points in that upcoming experience. That person may not have a significant trauma history that is bringing on that anxiety, but the realities of becoming a new mother and going through that experience bring anxiety for most of us, right? And so there might not be a lot in the past to work on, but we can do a full series of future templates to really support her in having a tremendous experience and being able to feel ready to face the challenges that are coming. Right, so we get to talk about float back technique, which is, in my opinion, one of the most powerful techniques or pieces that EMDR has to offer but unfortunately is so often overlooked and um, maybe not utilized to the full extent at which it could be. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited to dig in a little bit more on the float back technique. Some basic trainings actually don't even teach the float back or if they do, it's amongst many other concepts. And so our brains are fully saturated at that point and we have a hard time remembering how to integrate that in with our work. The float back technique is utilized as a way of tracking a memory network. So we are able to identify something specific that is showing up in the, their present experience and trace that back to say, where, it, where does that symptom or presentation or activation originate? What are some of the most influential experiences in their past that have influenced or shaped that symptom to be as it is in the present? So the float back technique is our way of kind of going in and tracking that back. And there's a few different ways that we can do that and different ways that we can utilize it for the therapeutic process. The float back technique may shine light on some experiences that the client was not expecting to be associated to their present symptoms. For instance, if a client comes in, you know, describing social anxiety of some sort, and we start to 
identify a little bit more of what does that feel like in their body, what emotions come up for them, what negative beliefs feel true. And we use those tools to trace back to find what other experiences in life represented that. Where else in their past did they hold a similar negative cognition? Did they have a similar affect or body sensation in their in their system that contributed to that present level of anxiety in social settings now? As we trace those back, we may find experiences that they are very aware, like, yes, I gave that speech in fourth grade and everybody laughed at me, that they're very consciously aware of that. But as we're continuing to float back, we may start to access material that's stored subconsciously that they're not really aware of or that they haven't thought about for a while. They've never made that association or connection to say, oh, you know, dad's criticism of me as a young child is really contributing to my present day struggle and being, you know, in social settings. So as we do that, we want to be very sensitive to our clients and and handle the float back technique with a lot of caution and not utilize it flippantly. It's not something we just throw out. Um, We give them a lot of information and understanding and we want to have tools in place like container, CompSafe Place, other resources already established and available to us to be able to utilize to come back to a place of regulation if something they discover is too activating. So some of you may have actually been trained that we do the float bag really, really early. In fact, in my training, which was several years ago at this point, that's how I was trained. That float back was actually session number one with Mm -hmm. your client, uh, which at this point I find pretty alarming. While it can be incredibly evocative for the client and kind of show them the power of what EMDR and this way of working can do, it's often pretty dysregulating if we do not have some previously established safety in our relationship and some preparation work to really help them manage any distress that does come up. The other thing that we want to do besides make sure that we have those protective things in place is talk with the client about what it felt like to them to come into that awareness of all of these things being connected. Sometimes we forget how, uh, yeah, dysregulating and a little bit overwhelming that can be to see that progression and feel that progression in your own body. So we want to talk with them about it after the fact of how did it feel to go through that process and to make those discoveries in this way. Um, So we want to leave time in the session to be able to connect with them relationally around that. When it is time to do a float back, we have to make a clinical decision about the way that we're going to do it because there's a few different ways. A more gentle way that may not go quite as deep but still get us some information is to just do it conversationally. In that way, we're going to be talking more to their left brain, more to their awareness um, that is already conscious for them of what might be connected but really slowing down and continuing to ask, is there anything else that you can remember? Is there any other moment where you really felt that way? And just letting them go through their memory banks nice and carefully and slowly and seeing what emerges. That uh, conversational way is great if we're a little bit uncertain about their stability, but we still want to do a little bit of digging. And we go nice and slow with that conversation and can check in all along the way. Does it still feel safe to continue? as we're in that conversation. The other way that we can do it, which is the way that a lot of us were trained, if this was included in your initial EMDR training, is the more meditative experience. There's a lot of similarity between uh, this version of the float back and phase three assessment questions. 
of activating the person's nervous system in a way that is going to let more subconsciously held material emerge from their body and show what is all connected in there. That is incredibly powerful, incredibly effective. Um, Not to be an alarmist, but I do call this the scalpel version of history taking. And when we need it, it is an absolutely essential tool, but we always want to be mindful of what we're doing. And that means that we have all of those preparations in place. We're talking with the client about safety. We're asking them, does it feel safe to continue all along the way? But when we need to get to the root of what's going on, this tool is essential for us. And so we want you guys to feel confident and able to use it. So this float back can be utilized for history taking towards the beginning of our work together. As Melissa mentioned, we don't recommend it first thing. Um, We always go into resourcing first, but once we get into trying to identify what targets are we even going to focus on for processing, we can utilize a float back technique to get that sequence of targets that we're going to address. Another way that it can be utilized is actually as a cognitive interweave or as an interweave of some sort. So if we are in the processing of a certain target and we find that we're getting stuck, we talked in an earlier video about feeder memories. Maybe we're starting to get that sense that it feels like there's something else behind this. We cannot quite clear it with what the client has access to or with the adaptive networks that they're trying to integrate. So in that, we may decide to utilize the float back as a technique bring that in to try to search in that moment, what else is behind this? So that's that's a way of kind of interweaving into their processing that says, what else happened or you know, what other previous experiences in life felt similar to what you're feeling in this moment? And that's a really just gentle way of taking us back to finding, is there another experience? It can be you know just dropped right into the reprocessing. It doesn't have to be something that we are formally stopping reprocessing, shifting over to float back, and then coming back. We can do it that way, and sometimes that's most helpful for the clients. But I find it to be really supportive of just kind of a gentle, natural, relational integration into what they're processing and trying to explore what other memories are there. When we're doing this type of work, The key pieces that we're focusing in on, like Melissa was mentioning, are like the assessment. So we want to be noticing the specific cognitions, the negative belief that is registering in their system, the emotions or the affect that are present with that, where it is stored in the body and the body sensation that is coming up. Those three pieces are really going to help activate the memory networks. As we talked in another clip about these experiences are stored in state-dependent ways. So it's through those specific questions that are going to help activate and help us trace back to the other memories um, and kind of where were those stored and what were the experiences around that. So we highly highly um, recommend utilizing float back, just doing it with caution, but knowing that it can be a really supportive way of getting focusing in on What do we really need to be working on with our clients and helping us select targets that are going to be very meaningful to their progress? Mm -hmm. So another very similar technique to the float back is the affect scan. The reason why we have the affect scan is because sometimes we get to this point in our work with our clients where we can uh, discover that if we keep focusing on the thought material, the cognitive material, it's not quite getting to the root of it. 
And that is really common because we have a whole world of experiences in our life before we have language. So what do we do and how do we work with those memories and those felt experiences that happened before we had a lot of language or in the case of a lot of dissociation where we don't have that explicit memory that gives us easy access to the thought material that was associated with that. And so the affect scan is a way of doing something very similar to the float back without focusing at all on the cognitive material. So we really highlight the body sensations and we're noticing the activation pattern in a very detailed way in the body and then floating back based on the sensation in the body alone and not looking at the thought material. This allows a more pre-verbal trauma or very low verbal trauma or dissociated material to emerge. And so, of course, we want to go slowly and carefully and really monitor the client's tolerance for that and make sure that we have resources available to us. But if we have situations where we need to do this, it's essential to be able to move back into that material before language was really available and work with that subconscious material as well. And we'll talk in a different video about how do we target preverbal trauma when we don't have an explicit story or an explicit uh, cognition to work with, we can still target that material. So over the years, EMDR has really evolved uh, from its original form, which was called EMD, into full reprocessing with EMD Big R. And we're going to talk about the nuances of that just a little bit. So in more recent years, the concept of intentionally restricting the flow of processing and being really mindful of how much material we're allowing to come through has been found to be really supportive for our clients. Um, so when we're restricting the processing, uh, it's a different form than EMD big R, which allows just all of the material to come through. So we have EMD, we have EMD little r, and we have EMD big R. And we're going to give you a little bit of information about each of those. So EMD is just eye movement desensitization. So it's a very restricted approach to processing. And the objective here is really just on desensitization. We're just trying to drop that distress, uh, whatever is being held in the body in relation to a past experience that is distressing. We're just trying to get that said down. We're not necessarily expecting or even looking for any association to other material. We're probably not going to get those uh, big insights that we're used to with EMD big R. We're just looking at dropping that said. That can be incredibly helpful to clients in certain situations, so we want to be able to do that if that is what they need. And then we have EMD little r. EMD little r is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, but restricted, meaning we're not opening the gates and saying any associated material can come through. We're being specific and selective about what we're going to allow and what we're going to contain. The reason for that, there can be several reasons for that. A lot of the times it might be early in our relationship with a client where maybe we don't have the safety established in our relationship yet, but we still want to make some progress. It could be that the client is in a life situation where we want to be really careful about how much activation we bring into their system. A practical example is maybe they have to go back to work right after this, right? Maybe they're a parent and they don't want to have a lot of dysregulation in their system when they go home to their kids that night. So those practical things can sometimes be a reason why we might do this little r version of reprocessing and keep it pretty restricted. 
It's also really useful when we're working with people with a complex presentation where we need to titrate the experience for them because they don't have a lot of natural adaptation in their system to be able to handle high levels of distress and then come back to a regulated place. So for all of those reasons and more, we might, de might decide to keep it pretty restricted. EMD big R is that full eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So this is where we really put a lot of trust in the whatever the client brings up is relevant and necessary and just letting their system process whatever associations that it makes. With this approach, we will utilize this with clients that we feel can tolerate that type of kind of openness. It's, it's a lot like opening the floodgates. And if there's not a lot back there, then that can feel manageable and not too overwhelming. But if there's a lot of stored activation, many associated trauma networks, that could become very flooding for the clients. So we want to help to regulate and restrict the processing as necessary. With EMG Big R, that's where we are going to get our most full holistic reprocessing with the clients. We're going to be able to tap into you know, how the body's experiencing that more, not just the cognitions that are associated with it. It may open up many other channels of processing with other uh, memory networks. So this is really kind of a, an ideal place to be if the client can tolerate it. If we end up restricting the processing for other clients, we may come back to, as we're kind of working on more restricted pieces of that, we eventually want to get to where we can come back to the original experience and check in and make sure everything got processed. So with EMD Big R, it's just a more um, like a faster way of getting there, but that may not always be what's best for your clients if that's too activating for them. I like to imagine it kind of on a spectrum that we, it's not that we're just going to do one approach or the other, but we can move on that spectrum. We can come into a places of the memory where we may restrict it a little bit more and then we may open it up a little bit more. So we can kind of shift and adapt to what our client's needs are as we're in that um, process with them. It may shift from target to target week to week based on what's going on in their life or even point to point within one trauma memory. Um, the field of EMDR has continued to look at different ways of adapting and kind of restricting the amount of processing to support clients who really need that. And one really beautiful technique that's been offered to the field is the flash technique. So this is a, a really incredible training that's out there, but it's a way of restricting processing even more than EMD. So it's, it's bringing it down to its um, most restricted way. And, and the flash technique is really looking at how can we reduce disturbance without even having to give a lot of conscious attention and awareness to the trauma itself. So it's like a subconscious way of processing the activation that's associated with that trauma. So this is a technique that we've both been trained in and would recommend um, as an advanced training if anybody is interested. Mm -hmm. And that training is put on by Dr. Manfield. He is one of the originators of the technique. And at least right now they have a six hour online training that will give you what you need to know in order to utilize this successfully with your clients. And we highly recommend it. So now we're going to talk about using ego state work specifically with dissociative presentation. This is a huge topic and it's really one of our favorites to talk about, partly because we find it to be such a beautiful and essential blend with EMDR. 
While it is not absolutely necessary to use this in your EMDR work, we really feel like when you blend the two, amazing things can happen, and it really helps us navigate some of the trickier spots with complex presentations. So what exactly is eco-state work? There are lots of different versions of it many people have heard about or are trained in and familiar with internal family systems. That is one particular version of ego-state work, but ego-state is actually just a way of anthropomorphizing the nervous system, right? So not to be flippant, but there's not actually tiny versions of ourselves inside of us. <laughs> what there is, however, is bundles of neuronal patterns, of systemic activation patterns that are created at specific times in our life and house the developmentally appropriate strategies that we had to create at different points in our developmental timeline in order to meet the challenges of our environment. So effectively, there are still sections of our nervous system that house the strategies and patterns of when we were young. And one of the ways that we can access, activate, and bring healing to those areas of the nervous system is by interacting with them in an anthropomorphized way. That's what ego state work is. We can do this in a myriad of different ways, but we're going to share with you some of our favorites. One of the essential tools that has a lot of research behind it was developed by a man named Fraser, and you guys may have heard of Fraser's family table. It's a, uh, a system that you go through, a process, and there's actually a script that you can use of gathering all of the different parts of the self into one meeting space in an incredibly therapeutic way and helping the client begin to identify and come into relationship with those different parts of themselves. And through that process, we gain a lot of information about what traumas are in their background, but also specifically about the strategies and the patterns that they had to create in order to cope with whatever those traumas were. Often what we encounter in those parts of self are stuck points are things that actually end up being barriers to being able to fully process and release traumas that we may be targeting with EMDR. So using ego state work and skills like Fraser's family table allows us to interact more directly with those parts of self that might be causing a barrier. And it, it, it does it in a really uh, relational way, which I think is beautiful and therapeutic in and of itself. Rather than meeting that part of self and telling it that it's no longer relevant, we can create relationship and have compassion for the needs that that part had that were not met in its past, and also for the self-protective strategies that it had to develop, the ways that it kept that person alive in the midst of some really awful situations. So ego state work is both a process of therapy but it also really supports the client in learning how to have a, a very specific way of interacting with themselves for the purposes of long-term self-care and self-parenting. Ego state work has such a beautiful way of bringing language to these really complex systems and experiences of the body and the nervous system that we may not have another way to access and express. So how do we bring those into therapy when we can give language to it and we can begin to add symbolism and imagery? We can now talk about it and it gives us the opportunity to work with that and be able to identify what are those needs, what are the experiences, and how can we meet those needs and offer safety and connection in that space. So with ego state, 
We can utilize really small um, interweaves of this in our EMDR work, being able to ask simple questions like, how old were you when that happened? And can you begin to picture yourself? Can you see an image of yourself that represents you at that time? What needs does that version of yourself have or that part of you have? Um, what is it that that part of you is desiring right now? So we can bring in these little questions, small interweaves to the processing. We can also go into more advanced, um, maybe directive ego state work, and that being some examples that Melissa was talking about with Fraser's family table, having them really bring in, um, and this can be full sessions that we're doing this kind of resourcing of bringing in imagery of the parts of self, um, being able to identify pictures that represent each of those parts, different feelings, um, different body sensations that are associated with that part of self. We can even start to develop relationship between the parts of self or between therapist and that part of the client and engage in conversation, start to develop safety with that unique part. And I think some of that is some of the most beautiful work that we see play out in our sessions when we get to see the complexity of our clients start to unfold and be able to be expressed and nuanced and talked about its details right there in session. So part of you know the resourcing in this way, when we're talking about developing generalized resources for a client, when we bring that into a pairing with ego state work, we may develop resources specific to the part of self. So a calm place for each part or identifying what creates a felt sense of safety for that part of the client. Um, so being able to take all of your knowledge of standard, more generalized EMDR concepts, but be able to integrate those in with ego state language and let those be a part of your resourcing and your reprocessing with your clients. Mm -hmm. Applying ego state work specifically in the case of complex dissociation um, means that we start to have creative ways of targeting past trauma. One of the most complex parts of targeting things with somebody that has a lot of dissociation is the lack of explicit memory to target. So there are many, many presentations where if we were to do a standard target sequencing with a client, they don't have memories to put on the list to target. So what do we do? Ego state work comes in to really help us with this. What we can do if there is safety, meaning we have the relational safety and the, the therapeutic alliance built with our client, but then also we've done um, a lot of preparation and resourcing with them, uh, we can move into actually targeting specific ego states. So rather than looking for a specific memory to target, it may not be there in the case of a dissociative client. So in the same way that we go through the phase three assessment worksheet, and ask for the image and the cognition and the emotion and the body sensations related to a memory, we can go through that exact same process, even using the same worksheet, but instead we're asking about an ego state, a part of self. So that can sound like when you think about that four-year-old part of you, what do you see? When you see that image of you at four years old, what thought goes with it that expresses the negative belief that you have about yourself at that time? You can imagine going through that assessment worksheet focused on a self-state, number one, how powerful that is, <laughs> but also how activating it can be. So this is why we go slowly and carefully and we're checking in with the client about their own sense of safety in that process. 
Once you go through that assessment worksheet targeting an ego state, you can move into bilateral stimulation in exactly the same way. What we have trouble doing is getting to a zero sud in the same way, but we can still get a lot of therapeutic gain by letting the associations uh, present themselves as images, as body sensations, as emotion. Many times people will have a exper an experience where it's almost like observing a movie happening in their mind of this part of self having incredible relational experiences either with their adult self or other parts of self or other relational resources. So this is much more imaginational, but it's tremendously therapeutic. And so for clients that don't have explicit memories to target, this is a more advanced way of working and we have to be very mindful of how powerful it can be but it is incredibly beneficial for those more complex cases. With this ego state approach, we can help the clients gain greater insight, understanding into their own systems. But as Melissa's explaining, we can actually go in and experience those internal restructuring of their past experiences beginning to shift and change in the present. So as we get into looking at how polyvagal theory and somatic psychology come into pairing with EMDR therapy, we're really starting to look at how can we track this, the shifts and the changes in the body to help inform us in our therapeutic process. And this is really going to help us tune into being able to notice the autonomic activation in the system and be able to identify what does that mean for the client and how can we respond as the therapist and stay attuned with them and help our therapy process really be supportive in that. So our autonomic awareness and tracking is a very helpful way of determining if our client is staying within that window of tolerance. We talk a lot about window of tolerance in EMDR therapy, but how do we know when they've exceeded that window or when maybe there's not even yet enough activation to do the processing that we need to do. There's a very like a prime spot that we need to fall in where the, the nervous system has enough energy and enough activation for reprocessing and that memory reconsolidation to occur, but it can't exceed it to where then the system begins to employ strategies um, or even move into a place of shutdown. So as we are watching and kind of tracking this with the, with the clients, it can be really helpful to incorporate um, language from the polyvagal theory and helping teach them about their own nervous system and how to track their own autonomic shifts, as well as us being, as the therapist, being able to track that from what we are visually experiencing and maybe even our own felt sense as the therapist monitoring our own autonomic activation in response to theirs. Mm -hmm. So one of the really common questions that I think both you and I have gotten is therapists that are reflecting on how they feel as a therapist in a session. And they'll say things like, I notice that when I'm sitting with this person, I kind of want to yawn a lot or I get really tired. And so that is a really great example of how your body can actually alert you to what's happening in the client's body. So unless there's an actual specific reason why you might be feeling tired, like you didn't sleep well the, the night before, what is usually happening is that your mirror neurons are picking up on the, the signals that are being sent from your client's body and you begin to experience those sensations as well. So in the case of feeling like you want to yawn and feeling really tired, that may be your body signaling to you that your client 
is heading more towards a dorsal or dissociated shutdown response in their body. That kind of signaling is what we mean when we say paying attention to the bodies in the room, right? And tracking closely the sensations that are happening in your client and in yourself to give you information about where you are in the process. Reflecting on that with your client and bringing them in on it so that you can have that shared language and have them help you in that tracking process is incredibly helpful when we're reprocessing. We can ask the usual question of where do you feel it in your body, but it can be much more useful to actually be able to observe what is happening in the client's body and reflect it back to them in order to deepen whatever they're experiencing somatically. We have a lot of clients that struggle with a lot of affect phobia and disconnection from the sensation in their own body. So for someone like that, if we ask them, where do you feel it in their body? They're likely to say either I don't or I feel it in my head. <laughs> and the reason for that is because trauma encourages us to disconnect from the discomfort and the distress sensations that we house down here. It makes a lot of sense that our traumatized clients struggle to really feel their own sensations. So in EMDR and including somatic psychology is a way of reintroducing them gently and safely to experiencing what's going on down here. So not only does it help us in the reprocessing, but itself is very therapeutic because it's healing that disconnect that they're often struggling with. When, when we do the body scan, it's really intentionally designed to help us notice the body, but you have to you know, recognize it for a client by the time they notice the body, and they're able to process whatever information they're experiencing there and bring it into the centers of their brain where they can pair it with language to express to us. By that point, it has already gone through multiple filters and could become a skewed report of some sort. There could be story wrapped around it or strategy in maybe I just say it's clear. Nope, everything's fine. Or I always say my heart because that's just what I know to say where if we're really monitoring those shifts and we are staying tuned in with the body, as Melissa is saying, and reflecting it back to them, or making note of the shifts and the changes that we see. Maybe it's the posture. Are they sitting you know, with tense muscles or are they sitting more relaxed? How are their legs crossed or uncrossed? Even the skin tones, are they flushing? Have they started to um, look like they're perspiring? Their um, eye contact or lack of eye contact? their breath patterns, their speech patterns, all of those teeny tiny details can really be the most direct and authentic form of communication that the body is going to give us rather than just asking for them to give a report on it. Mm -hmm. So just as some example of what this can look like, uh, just yesterday I was working with a client and I observed as she was uh, telling me a story that we were getting ready to process that it looked to me like her hands were trembling. And I was very curious if she had much awareness of what was going on. And so rather than saying, your hands are trembling, I asked her to hold her hands in front of her so that her brain could visually process the fact that she was currently trembling. So it's not just about us pointing it out. It's about providing the opportunity for them to integrate that information into their own system, right? Because as her, her brain processed the visual signals of her own trembling, it was an invitation to her system to slowly make meaning of what her body was trying to tell her. And her response to that, after looking at her hands for several seconds, was, I didn't know that I was anxious today. 
and yet her body was showing that. And that way of working is so much more powerful than just cognitively processing the story because she didn't have that awareness, but her body communicated that to us. So that is just one example out of hundreds of ways that you can bring attention to what the body is doing in a way that really deepens the experience and invites integration between story and state. Another important feature of polyvagal theory that we like to focus on is the cycle of story and state. Over and over a million times a day, the cycle is happening where story follows state, follows story, follows state, and around we go. Constantly, our body and the storytelling parts of our mind are in communication with each other and making meaning of the sensations. But the sensations are actually the part of us that hold the most truth about our experiences. Oftentimes, because of a lot of different reasons, including cultural reasons, we have been taught to choose a logical story rather than really listen to the truth that's held in our own body. So centering the body in our EMDR work invites the client to very slowly and gently hear the truth and make meaning in cooperation with their body rather than imposing a logical story on what they're feeling. So we want to talk about how we work with preverbal trauma and using symbolic processing. This is really important in complex presentations because there's so much of our early life that actually happens before we have language. And the idea that we can't process anything if it is not explicit languaged memory is problematic. So what do we do in those cases? So those implicitly stored memories are still held in the body and in the unconscious. They can have a profound impact on functioning. In previous vi videos, Jen talked about the foundation of the house that everything else is built on. These pre-verbal memories are often those most foundational memories. So being able to access those and process those with EMDR is essential. And the way that we do that is often with symbolic processing. Yeah, this type of work can be just so beautiful. It can be very complex, um, very abstract. So we typically recommend, and actually Francine Shapiro in her second book, recommended that this is not where you start your processing work with clients, that you would start somewhere in that elementary age um, where there is explicit like language to put to it and memory associated with it. So as you're starting your processing there, this may be something you come back into and kind of move a little bit deeper. We talked in earlier content about those feeder memories and the float back technique that can help us trace back to the very origins of these memory networks. This kind of developmental approach will often take us into those earliest developmental stages, which can be infancy. It can be um, prenatal experiences. And as bizarre as that may sound, they really are, those experiences are so formative in shaping our neurodevelopment, our nervous system development. So not ruling those out just because a client can't necessarily remember them in a way that they can communicate those experiences. So one method of being able to process those, if they don't have language around it, they don't have images that um, maybe are, that they actually remember happened is to symbolically associate some type of image around that experience. So asking a client um, to just kind of really tune into the body for one, because the body will remember that experience, and then asking what kind of image emerges as you notice that sensation deep within your body. 
what pictures come up. Maybe it's colors, maybe it's sound. Um, different, different senses get activated in that and helping them to tune into those and begin to find a way to express that. Many clients will utilize um, movies or um, fictional characters or some type of symbolic representation of something. An example I had of a client who did some symbolic processing was through an, uh, the image of a nest with a mother bird and some eggs. And the mother bird had flown off and left the eggs and the nest had fallen out of the tree. She didn't have a clear understanding of, I don't really know what this means or why this image is coming up and emerging for me right now, but it really helped her tune into that felt sense in her body and it gave us some content to start to process. As we went on with that processing, it became more and more clear how it associated, but that doesn't always happen. We just kind of have to trust the system and trust that whatever images are coming up, or as I said, sounds, colors, things like that, are representative of what's being stored in the system. So another example of when this can be really useful is in the case of highly dissociative situations, where even though they were verbal at the time of the memory, due to dissociation, explicit memory is not available. Um, I've done a lot of symbolic processing with folks that present with a DID presentation. And just like Jen said, sometimes we have no idea exactly how this is connected, but as long as there is clearly activation in the system and it's moving things forward, it can be incredibly helpful. I've had DID clients that have processed um, a lot through the symbol of many baby monkeys in a cage at a zoo, and each baby monkey was doing something different and had a different personality showing up. Um, I had another client that did it through Disney princesses. And she was very cognitively aware that she was not a Disney princess, but the manifestation of that in her imagination really helped her connect with the role that each part of her had played and really moved her uh, forward in her therapeutic journey. So all of those examples and more are times where we may want to use symbolic processing um, and it can be really useful. The other time that it can come up is when a client has heard a story about their past over and over or uh, was told something and it kind of stuck in their body, but they're not sure if it was true. So a good example where something like this might happen is in the case of an adoption story, where they were told your mother gave you up because of these reasons. And their whole life they've been imagining what that might have been. So was it accurate? We don't know. Did it have an impact on their nervous system? And is it part of how they were formed and shaped? Absolutely. So when we're targeting that, we let the system produce images that connect with the sensation and the way that those uh, stories are held in their body. And it gives them some handles to grab onto so that that can actually be processed. We're not concerned about, is it real? Did it actually happen exactly that way? It allows us to work through those things without being concerned about that. And kind of a similar nature with this would be processing or targeting uh, reoccurring dreams or nightmares as representations of something that the system is trying to process and, and bring some sense of meaning or closure to. So we can target dreams, nightmares, uh, flashbacks that maybe they have this reoccurring image or a thought that continues to come up in their mind. They don't know if it's real or imagined. We can target material like that as a way to offer their system a safe space to be able to 
um, experience what is being held in the nervous system, have the ability to release that and then come to a place of making meaning out of that experience. And a really important piece of this, if we are doing this type of processing, is knowing that really with all processing, but especially here, the body is the focus. It's not about the cognition. It's really difficult, if not impossible, to match cognition, negative cognition, positive cognition to represent that because these pre-verbal experiences are being stored in the system before it has language to associate to it. So we're putting an extra emphasis on the body and how it's held and experienced somatically. And then if they're able to express that through language with the symbolism or imagery of some sort, then that's kind of the language we're focused on. We're letting go of that more structured approach of saying each memory must have a negative cognition and a positive cognition. We're going to adapt that protocol and really emphasize the affect that's coming up and the somatic experience. Mm -hmm. Something that I say to clients a lot to help them kind of understand the way that uh, we do this work is if you can feel it, we can process it, as opposed to if you can say it, we can process it. Um, and so that's really helpful to us as therapists as well. As long as the client can feel the activation in their system, we can process that. And symbolic processing is one of the ways that we can target those more obscure sensations that don't have a lot of cognitive meaning attached to it. Another concept we want to explore more is working with attachment wounds. As noted before, our model for case conceptualization, one of the primary pillars in this work is attachment and neurodevelopment. So you could probably guess at Beyond Healing Center, we have a huge emphasis in looking at those attachment experiences and how those have shaped and influenced the individual and how they're showing up and presenting it for therapy. So when a client has extensive attachment wounding, it's very helpful to consider addressing the attachment deficits as well as those ruptures throughout each phase of the EMDR process. It almost becomes, um, this is a strong word, but impossible to do some of that other work without having the awareness of how the attachment um, wounds are coming into play and the way that their system has been shaped and the strategies towards attachment are going to come to play in the way they're making sense of each experience of the past, as well as the way in which they're interacting with us as you know the therapist in the room. So, so one way that we can really work in this way is with resourcing in the preparation phase, we can be very intentional in bringing in attachment resources. So you'll see this in like nurturing figure, protective figure, wise figure, really identifying some of those critical attachment figures that are necessary and being able to, to determine if the client has enough adaptive resources and adaptive memory networks in that realm or category to be able to process later experiences in an adaptive way. If they're lacking in that, then we may need to not only remind them or attempt to remind them of some of those attachment figures, they may be absent completely help them create new internalized representations of that um, attachment experience or attachment figure. So that can happen through, you know, imagining something that could be real or fictional, 
something they've been maybe been exposed to in a movie, on TV. Maybe they've seen a nurturing mother towards a baby on a commercial or while they've been at the park. Or maybe it's after we have this relationship with them and they can begin to imagine what would it be like? Or I have some clients will say like, oh, I just imagine how you are with your kids Mm -hmm. or how you treat me in here. And so where is it in their experiences of the past that they have some form of template or understanding for what is it like to have those attachment experiences? So we're focused on that during preparation and resourcing. We're also coming and revisiting it again in the history taking and treatment planning, case conceptualization. When we know that there's extensive attachment wounding in that history taking process, we're going to be gathering really specific information around that. And it's going to kind of shift our focus away from later trauma into saying the most important piece that we're identifying is, did this nervous system have exposure to that feeling of safety? Did it have exposure to that feeling of being seen and being soothed, a secure attachment figure in their life? If they didn't, it's going to have a a significant impact on every life event after that. It's going to shape the way in which they make sense of themselves and the world around them for the rest of their lives. So when that is comes to play and we see that in their history taking, we see those big gaps in lack of resources and attachment um, relationships in those early experiences, we know that a significant amount of work has to happen there before we can begin to target and reprocess something later in life. So during reprocessing, that means that we can select targets that address those attachment wounds and utilize attachment-oriented interweaves. Um, So rather than uh, kind of looking at the standard list of interweaves, if we know that someone has a lot of attachment rupture and that's one of our main therapeutic goals, we're going to focus a lot on that and what we interject into the system. It may also mean that we utilize our own relationship with them a lot more as an interweave in reprocessing. It is very possible that for a lot of our clients, we may be one of the first and only truly safe relationships where they are seen and uh, nurtured in this way. And so utilizing that as an interweave can be very, very therapeutic. It's helpful to return often and as needed to resourcing in order to steadily increase their positive attachment templates and really tracking the relationships that they have in their life outside of therapy and installing the positives that they're experiencing. It doesn't have to be a perfect relationship, but as long as it is better than they have normally experienced, we can use pieces of that. And as they heal, their relationships tend to improve. They learn to set boundaries. They learn to choose friends and partners, et cetera, that can actually be safe and protective to them. So we're moving with them as that grows and changes and installing all along the way. We also want to encourage a focus of the reparative and disconfirming experience of us, (laughs) of being in that safe and attuned relationship um, with their therapist. And anytime that we have an experience with them that is a disconfirming experience, we can pause right there and install that as a resource with slow bilateral. So an easy example of that is if we as a therapist make a mistake, let's say we miss an appointment, right? Or we say something dumb because we're human and we do that. (laughs) And then we come and we apologize 
and we have sincerity and we don't just brush it away and dismiss it with some kind of overly professional um, disconnect, right? But we're really human with them in that moment. And then we can ask them, what is it like to have this conversation and know that I really care about you and how that felt to you? Most of the time, that's going to feel shocking to our clients for a lot of different reasons. But right there is a tremendous disconfirming experience that we can utilize as a resource for them. So don't be afraid to lean in to those human-to-human -human connections and utilize them as resources as needed. So often people with really significant attachment wounding benefit from ongoing support in building new relationships outside of therapy. They don't have a lot of templates for how to do healthy relationships. So throughout their healing journey, we may be providing a lot of education and guidance and resourcing uh, to help them start to build safer and better relationships for themselves. So we want to be monitoring that as well, having conversations about their friendships, what kind of boundaries they're setting with family of origin, if that's appropriate, and really giving them guidance because they don't know how. Sometimes that might mean connecting them with other resources, uh, like some assertiveness training, some more uh, kind of self-help ideas of how to have better relationships, etc. Because we want to make sure that they have the opportunity to get those new disconfirming experiences because it's tremendously helpful in their healing from their past trauma. As they're able to venture outside of the session and have those experiences that could be disconfirming, we can bring those back into session during reevaluation and check-in and further install and strengthen those. So bringing attention to what did that feel like in your body? What was that experience for you? And does it feel okay to just sit with that and notice that for a moment and let yourself really experience all aspects of that? We can do that the same with the relationship with us. Those moments of us not being this perfect attachment nurturing figure, but through the imperfections and the repair of those ruptures, bring explicit attention to it. Ask them to notice that moment. What was it like when I kind of messed up here and we explored that together, we navigated that difficult situation? Or maybe it's something, um, an imperfection of theirs and they bring it and we explicitly address it and speak to how does that create feelings within us? And as we navigate that rupture and repair process, we're taking the time to notice it, install it, strengthen it with bilateral stimulation because it's then set into their system as a, an adaptive resource to be able to further process other trauma, other experiences with that adaptive nature. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.